Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern. I wish we had some uh, bombs like sounds <laughs> and, and, and ShamWow commercial sounds because the trade deadline did not disappoint. We had some amazing last minute trades that I'm sure Adrian and Shams dream of in terms of reporting so we will definitely get to that but first the weekly recap Giannis Luca both get 50 points Giddy from Oklahoma City gets back-to-back triple doubles being the youngest to ever do that the Celtics and Nets are streaking LeBron becomes the all-time leading scorer so this week was jam-packed Clay went off for 33 points recently as well so to start with Giannis and Luca, who had the more impressive outing between them of those 50-point games? So, I mean, this, this week was insane. It seems like right now everybody's starting to play their best basketball of the season, including Giannis and Luka Doncic. So if we're just looking at their individual games, you obviously see that Luka Doncic did score the one more point. It is a career high for him, not just a season high. And it was a very impressive stat line overall. He also chipped in here with nine rebounds, six assists, one block, one steal, hit seven threes out of 14 attempts. But I think for me, I'm still going to go ahead and give the edge to Giannis just because Giannis did not have seven turnovers the way that Luka Doncic did. He actually had more turnovers than he had assists. Um, and he was 17 of 26 from the field. So it wasn't quite as efficient as Giannis's game. So I'm going to go ahead and give the edge to Giannis Antetokounmpo because they end up completely routing the team that they played against. I mean, it was a bigger margin of victory, 128 to 119. It wasn't a blowout by any means, but the guy did have 17 of 21 field goal shooting, 14 of 18 from the line, showing a lot of improvement from there. He did have a double with 14 rebounds and he only had three turnovers to go with it. So I think overall it's a more efficient 50 pointer. So I'll give it to Giannis. I agree with you. And I think the other thing to note with this is Giannis has now pushed himself to be the leading scorer in the league right now at 29.4 points per game. Uh, And he's doing so on definitely high volume, but efficient shooting to your point, he's 55% from the field. Uh, He's 30% from three-point range, but not really a deadly three-point shooter at the moment. Um, And he's averaging a a double-double with 11 rebounds. And he's now second to Jokic in PER by .03. So Giannis, Embiid, and Jokic are all vying for that MVP spot. I think it is absolutely a big man race. We've talked a lot about the changing of the guard and going from big men dominant to small ball to now these big men who can space the floor and pass and do everything that a guard can do at a larger frame. So these three guys are leading the way in terms of the MVP race, as well as points per game and overall efficiency. Yeah, it's really impressive what they've been able to do. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo recently came out and said that if Joel Embiid wants the MVP, he's going to have to go through him type thing. But um, it'll be interesting. These guys are going to have um, a couple more matchups in the year. See these guys go head to head. They have to defend each other and they do it in different ways. I mean, these guys are both very versatile big men who, although they're not elite shooters from the outside, they can still knock down enough jumpers from the outside to make you go out there and defend them. And that combined with their ball handling ability for their size and their athleticism obviously makes them very unique. And I think that they each have their own specific way that they like to go about doing it. They each have their strengths and weaknesses. So um, it'll be very interesting to see which of these two guys win it. I don't see that Jokic, as much as I would like to believe that he actually probably the three is having the greatest statistical individual season. I just think that his team's success is just going to be too much for him to overcome when you have Joel Embiid and Giannis's Bucks putting their teams in positions where they're potentially going to be contending for a championship. So I think it's going to be Giannis, Joel, the whole way through. But like you mentioned, other big things really happened this week. 
What do you make of Josh Giddy becoming the youngest player to get back-to-back triple doubles? He's also got the three youngest triple doubles of all time as well. So this is a guy that I think a lot of people didn't know who he was. He didn't play college ball here in the U.S. Pretty unknown guy. And now is turning out to be a pretty solid selection for this team. Very unique player. What do you think of him? Uh, I think that it, one, makes the Magic kick themselves for not taking him at number five. I think that the other four guys ahead of Suggs probably deserve to go, uh, either in some variation of that order. But Giddy is clearly showing out and is doing so on a team that you know is destined for greatness in maybe three years. And I think that Sam Presti, as he continues to dominate uh, stockpiling picks and stockpiling good players from the draft. If Pat Riley is the godfather, then Sam Presti is going to start looking like Scarface. And (laughs) and Josh Getty overall, I mean, this is a guy who out of Australia, um, people were, were high on him coming in, but they just didn't see him as the same talent as Cunningham or Jalen Green or Evan Mobley. And so... I think if he continues to do this, you already have Shy there. He's Shy's going to get a large contract extension this offseason. Uh, and the Thunder still have like 15 first round picks in the next four or five years. So Thunder are sitting in a very good spot. They seem to have their backcourt figured out now with Gideon Shy. And I, I think the sky's the limit for this team in, in two or three years. Yeah, I really love the fit for their backcourt. I think that the Thunder, who were rumored to be dangling Shea Gilgis-Alexander earlier in the year, would be crazy to trade him at this point. He still has clearly his best basketball ahead of him. He clearly has the talent level to be an all-star at some point in his career. And I think that his skill set is very complementary to Josh Giddey's. They're both guys who are willing passers. But Josh Giddey, I think, of the two of these guys, is probably the one that would take on the larger playmaking role currently averaging 6.3 assists per game in his rookie year. And Shea Gilgis-Alexander would probably take more of the offensive burden. So I think that their skill sets are really great together. Josh Giddy to be six foot eight and to be able to pass, handle, and make the decisions that he does at only 19 years old kind of has shades of Luka Doncic a little bit. He's not quite a very um, efficient three-point shooter or scorer overall. But it is his rookie year, and he's showing that he impacts the games in multiple different ways. I think that you can start looking at Josh Giddy kind of in the mold of player that a Luka Doncic or a LaMelo Ball might be in terms of looking at a tall six foot seven, six foot eight playmaking point guard type of guy in the body of potentially a shooting guard or small forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's these these bigger guys like we're talking about with large frame who are playing at that point guard skill level it's like having a bunch of magic johnsons everywhere where before he was the exception to the rule and now you have lamella ball you have giddy you have luca you obviously have lebron but all of these all of these bigger guys who handle the ball extremely well and i remember when evan turner came into the league and they're like He's like a, a power forward, but but also a point guard. He's like a point forward. And now it's like that's what everybody needs on their team. <laughs> Everyone's looking for that. Yep. But no, the league, obviously, right now, very good position, very competitive. If we look at the standings, we can see that teams are still streaking. We have the Boston Celtics now currently riding a nine-game winning streak, which is the league best. And from a team that was clearly looking like a fringe playoff team at best earlier. They're now solidly in the sixth seed. Um, The difference from sixth to seventh between them and the Raptors is three win differential right now. So I really do think that the Boston Celtics are probably going to hold firm in that top six. The Brooklyn Nets finally get a win after losing 10 in a row, but are now all the way down to eighth. But if you just look at this playoff race, I mean, the teams at the top, It is tight. You have the Miami Heat at number one, tied with the Bulls with 37 and 21, the Bucks at 36 and 23, then the Cavs at four, 35 and 23, 
the Sixers after that at 34 and 23, and then the Celtics at six at 34 and 25. All these teams are within a couple of games of each other. So it's really a jostling of positions between that top six in the East. And then I think when you look at the West, they don't quite have um, that level of margin where every team is within a game or two of the next team. But the West has also been extremely competitive, boasting three teams that have 40 plus wins. The East don't have a single team with 40 wins. And you have quietly the Grizzlies up to 41 and 18, Warriors 42 and 16, and now Phoenix Suns, who are still on a tear on another winning streak. Seems like every time we talk about the Suns, they're on a winning streak of some kind, but currently riding a six-game winning streak with the best differential in the league with a record of 47 and 10. So they're obviously staying hot. So it'll be interesting to see um, after the All-Star break which teams can sustain this and what the seeding is going to be like. It's going to be a very competitive playoff. It is, and I still hold true to what I think should be the rule change for the play-in tournament. I think that any team in the 9 or 10 spot cannot have a losing record uh, in order to be in the play-in. So I strongly feel that the Lakers and Blazers, as well as the Hornets and Hawks, would all be eliminated with no play-in game. So but what do you do it, when you're in the West, though? What do you do if you, if you implement that rule? What do you do when you're in the Western Conference and the eighth seed has a losing record? If the losing record is better than the bet than the next losing record, then there's no play-in game. If the Lakers right now were at 29 and 31, similar to the Clippers, then there could be a play-in game. But I don't think that there should be a like tournament I don't of losers. You don't you don't like that? You don't like to see a tournament nah. of which team can suck the least? No, nah, I don't think that the Blazers can have a 10 game uh under 500 compared to the Timberwolves having four games over 500 who have been better all season. And then the Blazers for one game get Damian Lillard back who goes off and all of a sudden eliminates the Timberwolves who have played well all year. I just don't think that that's, that's fair or right. Um, I agree and, with that. And, yeah. and even what if, what if the Oklahoma city thunder caught fire and Giddy continues to play well and they're only six games back with a decent amount of the season to go like, they're going to be able to trump the Timberwolves. Like, I just don't, yeah. I don't subscribe to, to that. I think that there should be a, additional layers in place to not just allow like a participation trophy to that 10th spot. They may add some stipulations to it down the road. This is a very new thing. I don't know that I would say that everyone has to have a winning record for this to happen because there are some years where the teams near the bottom of the standings have losing records and still make the playoff, sneak in a seventh or eighth seed, sometimes even a sixth seed with a losing record. So I think for me, what I would rather see is a rule where you have to be within a certain amount of games of the next team for the play-in okay. tournament. So once you have a close enough margin, then we can talk play-in tournament. That's fair. But let's talk about LeBron. He passes Kareem for all-time leading scorer between playoffs and regular season. So I think he's a little over 44,000 now to pass Kareem. Definitely a huge milestone. I know he's still itching to get beyond the all-time scoring list for Carl Malone, which he's inching towards ever closer with the 29 points per game. And finally, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, who he may catch up to next season or the following so just, just talk about the feet and what lebron's been able to do between postseason and regular season i mean obviously it's extremely impressive for him to have been able to do it i think a lot of it speaks to the fact that lebron james has played in a lot of playoff games this guy has made a lot of deep runs i know that we always get on him for having lost um a lot of finals series having a losing record in the finals individually but getting to that stage it's very hard just to arrive at that level. And I think that playing all those games also helped him reach um, the milestone that he's currently at. But we can't just say that it's a matter of him playing all these extra games because there's a lot of guys, you can say play a lot of games that obviously don't have anywhere near as much success as he does. So um, I think that for all the criticism that he gets about how he's not um, a great scorer, he's really a pass first guy, all this. I mean, he really doesn't get enough credit 
for his scoring. He's currently averaging 29 points a game on 52% from the field and 35% from three. I think that this would probably rank as one of the best offensive seasons that he's ever had. And he's doing it at age 37. The last time LeBron James was able to average 29 points or higher was in 2009 when he was with the Cavaliers. That was before he joined the Heat. So for him to still be doing it now just shows that it's not just that LeBron James has been a great scorer. He's been a great scorer seemingly since he got into the league until now. And so I think that it's just he's so good at other aspects of the game, perhaps even better than he is at scoring, that we tend to take that away from him a little bit. So um, LeBron James, obviously, you got to give him his props. Regardless of how the Lakers may be doing this year, I don't think that this is going to be their year. Um, I think that LeBron can probably look at the season and take solace in the fact that, hey, we're probably not going to win the championship this year, even though I'm going to tweet that we are. But, you know, it's a season that I can at least continue to pad on individual accolades. It's a season that by the end of it, who knows where he's going to rank on this all-time list. So um, obviously a very impressive player. Congrats to him. It's impressive that he can do it at 37 still for sure. Yeah, and depending on how his assists uh, go in, in the second half, uh, he will potentially pass Magic Johnson for sixth all-time in assists. And by next season, assuming he stays healthy, he will definitely solidly be in that four spot at some point during the season. So he's going to finish his career. We talked about this before, probably behind Chris Paul, because Chris Paul seemingly continues to age backwards as well and has the type of game that is going to lend itself to playing for a long time, kind of similar to LeBron. And I would say even maybe more so uh, is good for older age, just based off of him being able to pass the ball and not having to rely on his athleticism quite as much as LeBron. But I think that Chris Paul's just going to continue to climb and maybe eclipse Jason Kidd if he plays for the full duration of his contract. But LeBron, I think, will solidly be in the top five of assists when he retires, as well as number one for scoring. So that also just shows his complete game. Yeah, no, he's been a very impressive player. I mean, obviously the Lakers didn't make any major splashes at the trade deadline. I think the biggest question now for LeBron's career, I mean, obviously he's a Hall of Famer. Um, he's on the Mount Rushmore of basketball. Whether you love him or you hate him, you have to acknowledge he's probably one of the five best basketball players to ever play the game. So I think the question now with LeBron James's career is, will he actually be able to win another ring? Because at this point, I mean, yes, it's very impressive, obviously, that he was able to accomplish this feat today. But I think that as far as for his career's legacy, I don't really think there's anything else that he can do to put himself in a higher position in terms of people's perception of where he ranks all time besides winning another ring. Like, seriously, I, I really just I'm not saying that that's fair or that that's right. But I think that even if he were to become you know, the all-time leading scorer in every category and also the all-time leading passer. You know, he could even be the all-time leading rebounder, whatever you want. And if he can do all of that, he still isn't going to rank all-time any higher than where he is right now for the simple fact that people want to see someone win a championship. And although he does have a few to his belt right now, I think that adding another is probably something that would solidify his position against some of the other all-time greats that people constantly are saying are better than him. So I think that's the major question for the rest of his career. Can he possibly win one more? Yeah, and I think the the biggest thing for him would be, could you imagine if his last ring, and this would be like the, you might consider the NBA stage at this point. If Bronny goes to a team, he goes to whatever team that is, they win a ring together, and that's LeBron's last season and Bronny's first season, and then he rides out on that. That would be the biggest storybook ending that would feel so scripted. It would. I mean, if he did that, they could actually make a movie out of that, and it would be a lot better than the Space Jam movie he put out. But, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. There's obviously still a lot of time left in his career. He's indicated that – uh he hasn't thought about retiring yet. And as long as he can keep playing at a high level, he's going to, and he seems to enjoy being in the spotlight. So I think that he will keep playing until 
his body says otherwise. Yeah. Well, on to the most exciting part of the show, the trade deadline. Like I said, it did not disappoint. You had the Hornets get Montrez Harrell and Spencer Dinwiddie and Porzingis were swapped between the Wizards and the Mavericks. You had the Celtics get Tice back as well as White from uh, San Antonio for Dennis Schroeder and the Tice deal and Richardson and Ennis Cantor Freedom and the Derek White deal. The Bucks get Serge Ibaka, Pistons get Marvin Badgley, Clippers get Rodney Hood, and Kings get Dante DiVincenzo and a large 14 deal. But the deal that everybody wants to talk about, which is James Harden and Paul Millsap were traded for Ben Simmons, two first-rounders, Seth Curry, and Andre Drummond. I texted you immediately as this trade happened. Uh, Harden finally gets his wish and goes over to Philadelphia. It seems like there was some bad blood between Harden and all of the Nets, not just KD. KD gave his blessing to this happening. Paul Millsap, who was left for dead in Brooklyn, now gets an opportunity to play in Philadelphia. And the Nets get Ben Simmons, finally ending the Ben Simmons saga. Simmons spoke for the first time, saying that he talked to everybody on the 76ers except for Joel Embiid. And the 76ers were able to, instead of trading Tybal or Maxi, get rid of two first-rounders. And then they gave away Seth Curry, so Brooklyn gets a big-time three-point shooter and Andre Drummond to help out with some of their front court presence. Who do you think really won this deal overall in the short term and the long term? It's a really tough one, but um, I would probably say that short term, you probably give the win to the 76ers. Long term, you give the win to the Nets. I think that the potential of James Harden and Joel Embiid on paper, it's potentially really good. I mean, these are guys that have complementary skill sets in terms of what they can do on a basketball court together. It can be very scary for a team to have to go up against two guys that either one of those guys can potentially go off for 50. You have a former MVP winner in James Harden, and you have a perennial MVP candidate in Joel Embiid. So, and I obviously, I think most people would agree that James Harden is the better offensive player than Ben Simmons. I mean, what Ben Simmons does is bring defense, but that's not really what the 76ers issue was. The 76ers issue was their offense as a result of Ben Simmons lack of ability to spread the floor. So he just wasn't a good fit on that roster. I think that James Harden is going to alleviate a lot of that. And I think that it's going to be um, very nice for Joel Embiid to have somebody that can provide that much space for him to work down low especially someone that's a pretty willing passer. I think that it's just going to be interesting to see how these uh, personalities are going to mesh because I don't know that the personalities are a great fit. I know that James Harden is a player that is very moody. He's the kind of guy that there had been reports um, coming out of Nets camp that he's the kind of player that when things aren't going the way that he wants, he tends to kind of check out mentally and go through the motions. Apparently, Um, He didn't really agree all the time with Steve Nash's offensive philosophy. And as a result, he'd kind of get tuned out. He didn't really um, love that they called so many plays for Durant and asked him to be off the ball more. He's a guy that really wants to be on the ball the majority of the time. He's not, I mean, look at James Harden. He's not going to move off the ball. Like, have you ever seen James Harden running around off the ball, cutting, trying to get open? He doesn't do that. When he doesn't have the ball, he stands there and he waits to see if you're going to give it to him. So that does not work for what the Nets were trying to run. I think that that offense can maybe work out a little bit better with Joel Embiid because now he's going to become the de facto point guard and he's probably going to be tasked with running the offense and getting everyone into their spots more. But um, I just don't think that long-term it's going to be a smart deal for them because James Harden and Joel Embiid are essentially two guys that are your best players, but are highly injury prone and are kind of volatile mentally. So I don't see this as an ideal championship window for the future. I think that they have to capture lightning in a bottle this season or the next for it to work, especially given that James Harden is already on the wrong side of 30. And unlike some of these other players in their thirties that are thriving, which we'll get into 
a little bit more, more of that later. James Harden doesn't really seem to have the level of commitment to his conditioning or to his health that some of these other guys do. And that's why the last couple of seasons, he's always got something like it seems like his hamstring is always acting up or his shoulder or something else, his ankle, part of it being that he probably plays above his playing weight or his ideal playing weight anyway. So when you combine that with Joel Embiid, a guy who has been healthy this year, but has been known to have a spotty injury history, it's a big gamble to give away two first round picks for a guy who is very volatile, moody, and probably is only going to give you two more years of basketball where you can maybe win a window with Embiid. So I think that the Nets end up winning this one long-term. You get two first-rounders out of it, so you can hedge your bets a little bit for the future with this team. You get Drummond, who is a better player than many people give him credit for. He's really great at rebounding the ball and defending on the interior, which is one of the things that the Nets were lacking the most. They're essentially getting no production from their front court. And they also get decent spacing and shooting with Seth Curry coming over. So I think that the trade is on paper a good one for both teams. I just think that it's probably a little bit better for the Nets' long-term outlook, getting those two first-rounders back. Yeah, it's uh, – I agree with you on the short-term, long-term. And, you know, I – I think Stephen A sometimes says some things just to stir things uh, and, and get some publicity in the media. But something he said recently about this that I completely agree with is there's never been more pressure on James Harden than there is now to perform because he's either looking at becoming the next Russell Westbrook in terms of I'm going to get traded every season and just shopped around every season because no team can actually win with me and my MVP days are over. Or he's going to be the James Harden that we all know to be great and stop with these injuries. I, I think some people are calling them uh, fabricated in order to get traded, uh, as well as needs to stop with the, like, I, I don't know if it's a, a fat suit or he just ends up eating a bunch of salt and, and putting on some water weight for a little bit, but he needs to, to your point, get his conditioning up because his beard's not the only thing that's looking thick nowadays. And so I, I Dude, think I'm that telling you, this is a guy who's self-admitted. I mean, this guy admitted we were halfway into the regular season and he's saying that he doesn't feel like he's at his peak physical conditioning yet where he can drop 30 points every game. Dude, what do you mean? We're halfway through the year. You were supposed to show up to training camp ready and we're halfway through the season and you're still warming up. What do you mean? You're making max contract money to still be warming up mid season. You can't play like that and win a championship. Yeah, it, it, you can't. And I mean, look at somebody like Chris Paul who is playing deep into his thirties. And like we just talked about, seems like he's aging backwards, even though he's about to turn 37 in May, you have LeBron who similarly just turned, uh, I think 36 or 37. And then you look at a guy like Allen Iverson, who was amazing when he was young, but similarly had like partying issues. And because of that was out of the league, probably too early compared to where people thought he might have should have like continued to play. Um, he, he gets out of the league when he is only like 34. And so I, I think James Harden needs to look at himself in the mirror and say, do I want to be known as great? Do I want to actually win a ring? Do I want to, and he's in the wrong place to not play well. Philadelphia is the most, most ruthless sports town in probably the world, if not the U.S. Uh, it is known in any sport to throw things at players, to probably send them death threats, depending on the level of the game, to boo them in the middle of the game. Like Philly fans are passionate. And if James Harden goes there and slacks off, he will like the entire fan base will let him know. So he, he def definitely needs to figure out what he wants to do. Uh, and also, however he plays for the rest of the season, he doesn't have that 
$50 million check now because he forgot to file his, and, and I'm saying forgot with air quotes, forgot to file his player option for next year. So if he plays terribly, Josh Harris and ownership is not going to let Daryl Morey give him a five-year, $200 million contract. They might give him a one-year, $40 million contract, but they're not going to give him five years if he plays terribly uh, throughout the rest of the season. Oh, no shot. This is going to be the season. These next two are going to be the ones that probably determine the way that we remember James Harden, because this is going to be the time where he shows us what he's really about. Are you a guy who your number one priority is being a winner and being great on the court? Or was your number one priority making enough money and being successful at basketball so that you could live the life that you wanted to live outside of basketball, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if that's your prerogative, so be it. It's not like he's on my team, but um, you know, it just depends for Sixers fans who James Harden really is. And I don't think anyone really knows. Is he the guy that seemingly has basketball as his priority first, or is he the guy that uses his status in basketball to be able to live the life that he wants outside of it? So I guess we'll find out. We shall see. But the Hornets got Montrezl Harrell and the Wizards also traded away Spencer Dinwiddie for Kristaps Porzingis. So based off the moves that the Wizards made, do you think that they got better after this? Um, I mean, I think that the Wizards probably did get better from the standpoint of potential, right? I mean, this is all very theoretical stuff. Porzingis is a guy who, in theory, provides a lot of upside. It was only a few years ago when he was with the Knicks that he looked like a surefire perennial all-star. The guy does have some really, really rare attributes for a guy his size. I mean, he's seven foot. He can shoot pull-up jumpers. He can shoot three-pointers. He's a solid rim protector. Should rebound it a little bit better for his size, but I think part of that is they had him playing primarily as a spot-up shooter that was post up quarter three or at the top of the three to provide spacing for Doncic. So I think pulling away from the basket maybe had something to do with why his rebounding numbers weren't as good as you'd expect. But this is a guy that legitimately brings all-star potential, and he's still very young. He's still got his whole career in front of him. I think that with him, the biggest question is, can he stay healthy? I think that for the Wizards, you're not realistically going to add an all-star in free agency. No one's going to go there. And based on the contracts, players that you had on your roster, I don't think that you were going to be able to go out there and trade for a legitimate all-star either, unless you were going to trade Bradley Beal, at which case, if you're a team that's trying to compete with Bradley Beal and build around him, you wouldn't do that. So how do you pair Bradley Beal with all-star talent if you're the Wizards? It's very complicated. So for them, this is about as, as close as you can get to that, given what they had on their roster. So if he could stay healthy, in theory, he's a really nice fit with Bradley Beal. The Wizards really haven't had a player like Porzingis on that roster ever. So that inside-outside combination could be pretty nice, but it's going to be contingent on them finding a role and system that maximizes Porzingis for this to work. Because over in Dallas, the reason why it largely didn't work out was because Porzingis and Doncic had very... I guess, different playing styles and opinions on how the offense should be run. Porzingis was vocal about being unhappy with his role as essentially being a decoy guy who would post up at the three-point line and just space for Doncic. Everything would basically be Doncic does everything. The offense goes through him. So I think that uh, Porzingis is missing some of his days from the Knicks where he would actually get plays called for him and he would be given some freedom to at times initiate offense. It'll be uh, interesting to see if Bradley Beal is a player that he can form that kind of chemistry with. But I would say that Bradley Beal is probably a little less ball dominant than Luka Doncic is. So it gives Porzingis a fresh start and a chance to potentially pair with another all-star and prove that he still has all-star potential in there. I think it's just gonna, like I said, the biggest question on who won this deal is going to come down to health. If Porzingis stays healthy, the Wizards win. If he doesn't play very much because he keeps getting injured, then it's better to have Dinwiddie because even though he probably wouldn't ever be an all-star, at least he's going to play. Yeah, I think 
you're right. Porzingis just clearly wasn't a fit. And yeah, if they're able to uh, get anything out of Porzingis on a consistent basis, then it will make the Wizards better overall. We'll see if Bradley Beal does want to re-up in Washington based off of that. It's interesting that Washington essentially said everybody's off limits uh, or everybody's free to trade except for Kyle Kuzma and Bradley Beal. So Kuzma clearly is looking like a focal point and is looking like the best player traded between the Lakers and the Wizards over that Russell Westbrook trade. But now the Wizards, I think, do retool in a better way for Bradley Beal. We'll see if that's enough to make him stay. And for the Mavericks, I think, to your point, Dinwiddie is a good backup and potentially can start in the backcourt for some games with Luka. But I think overall it frees up playing time now for some of their other big men who are playing well and Finney Smith. Um, and I think also it they get back David Bertrands, who has been seen to be a pretty good shooter at times. So I think it was a win-win for both sides. Yeah, I can see it. It definitely made sense for both sides. It was a difficult situation for both of those teams in terms of creating something and acquiring talent. So I think that it was a creative solution for both of them. I know a lot of people were scratching their heads at the trade because it doesn't really seem to make sense. But um, if you look a little deeper, you can see that it's that these teams were really limited in their options. So it's about as best as they could do. Yeah. Well, Let's talk now about the Celtics who got back Daniel Tice after trading him last year and also get Derek White from the Spurs. They had to give up Schroeder, I think Bruno, uh, Richardson, and his Cantor Freedom. And there's one other player that I'm missing. But do you feel like based off these trades and moves, did Brad Stevens do enough to get the Celtics to improve? I mean, I would say that they're definitely better. Um... I mean, Derek White is a, a nice player. He's not a star, but he's nice. He's averaging 14 points a game, has a PER of 16.12. He's a willing passer, 5.4 assists per game. Um, seemingly fits into what they're trying to do because we know that they're not trying to take away any field goal attempts from Tatum and Brown. So they weren't looking for a volume score or anything like that. They're really just looking for pieces that they think can help complement Tatum and Brown. So I do think that they did get a little bit better with this deal, mainly from the standpoint of adding Derek White. I know that Daniel Tice, um, he was on their team before and obviously made a nice impact for them when he was there before. I just don't really think that Daniel Tice is as much of an impact player as a lot of other people would think. He's one of those guys that seemingly is only going to play above average basketball if he's on the Celtics. Um, other than that, I don't even know if anyone would talk about him, but I think that the Derek White edition is solid. He's not a great three-point shooter, but he's serviceable. I just don't think that these moves are going to move the needle for the Celtics. I think they got better, but I don't think that it makes them that much better that it's going to jump one of the five teams that are in front of them better. So they did improve, but not enough to make a significant difference in my opinion. I disagree with you. I think that this was a definite improvement for the Celtics and helps them uh, beef up their overall roster with guys who largely weren't contributing in the way that they needed them to. I think with Derek White, they get somebody who's not only scoring more points than both of the guards that they sent out combined pretty much with Richardson and Schroeder, but get a guy who is a clampdown defender. And so they get somebody who can guard wings good lateral quickness overall is a good player uh, and also can provide them some offense. They get now somebody who can fill in for Marcus Smart, both defensively uh, as well as at the guard position now that Marcus Smart has gone down with an ankle injury. And from the, the center power forward position, Cantor Freedom, he can rebound on the offensive end and give you a couple points a night, but he is not a great switch defender. He's not great on the defensive end. He is the defensive liability, even though he is large and plays the game as if he's a, a much older player. And so you have somebody like that and you trade him for Daniel Tice, who in their playoff run where the Heat beat them during the bubble, 
he seemed to be an anchor for that defense. And so Daniel Tice, they get him back. He was definitely, I feel, a, a team and, and crowd favorite. And so I think that they made upgrades for both positions and they're now on a winning streak of nine. So I think that this team has, has done all the right things to retool and continue to push forward for the playoffs. It'll be interesting, man. We'll have to see. But for my opinion, you get Derek White and you're basically giving back Dennis Schroeder and Josh Richardson. And what you're getting back is essentially kind of a fusion of those guys. Like Josh Richardson was averaging nine points a game. You're right. But he was taking very few field goal attempts. He was shooting nearly 40% from three. So they're downgrading big time on three-point accuracy with Derek White, actually. They're about the same age. So it's not like one presents a higher upside than the other. Dennis, uh, Dennis Schroeder is actually averaging 14.2 points per game, which is pretty much the exact average that Derek White is averaging. They're also about the same age, 27 versus 28. And Dennis Schroeder is also shooting higher percentages from the field, from three, from the free throw than Derek White is. So uh, Dennis Schroeder is averaging four points a game. Oh, no. 14.2 points per game on 2021-22. Oh, and then it must be four points per game for, uh, yeah, four points per game in Houston now. So he's so far played terribly in Houston. Um, um, well, obviously he's in Houston. I mean, you have no, no that means he should. That means he should be putting up like 20 points. Oh, nobody please. Can shoot. Come on, man. He was averaging. You can't look at all. He's playing in Houston and he's averaging four points a game. And like that cancels out everything he did before that point he was averaging 14.2 points per game before he got traded we're talking about the analysis of the trade you didn't know that he was going to average four points a game for the rockets before he got traded there we're working well, on the assumption of what he was doing before he got traded he has right. a higher per right now even with his four point games on the season than Derek white does yeah well i think Schroeder, honestly most questionable decision in the nba ever to turn down the four years 84 million from the lakers his that obviously <laughs> well maybe just, that points to his his mental uh his mental state maybe that's why the celtics can't deal with Schroeder. maybe it's not a numbers thing maybe it's simply that they cannot understand his reasoning or decision making maybe it's that you could argue that Derek white is probably a better decision maker coming from pop system but honestly when you look at the points going out versus the points coming in, you're actually losing more net points per game going out than what you're getting back. So you better hope for the Celtics that these guys are going to improve their production going into your system, because if they go to your system and they give you exactly what they're giving you right now, it was a slight upgrade at best. Yeah. Well, moving on to the all-star game, the all-star teams were picked a lot of uh, fun between Kevin Durant and LeBron towards the end there with James Harden. But overall, who do you think has the better team and will win the game? <laughs> well, I think that obviously, well, maybe not obviously. Some people may disagree with me, but I think that clearly team LeBron is the better team. And I think that part of it too is that Durant, I guess maybe since he's not going to play in the game anyway, I think that he was less concerned with picking the best possible team that he could pick and more concerned with kind of being petty and just picking guys that he likes. Like he didn't seemingly want to pick any of his former teammates. He didn't want to pick Stephen Curry. He didn't want to pick James Harden. Um, but, you know, I think that it's going to be a fun game to watch. It's obviously going to be competitive, but I just think that for Team Durant, it's going to be really tough when you have to go against a team that has Giannis Antetokounmpo and Nikola Jokic and Luka Doncic and Stephen Curry, and then there's also LeBron, who actually is playing. So I just think that that starting lineup is better. I mean, position to position, I think that the only advantage on the starters for the Team Durant starters is probably Joel Embiid, maybe, if you want to say that he's better than Nikola Jokic. And that one is like a pick em. Like, those guys are about even. I don't really know that you can say that one is definitely better than the other. But I think that Team LeBron probably has the better starting lineup. I think they have a better team overall, uh, Team LeBron. So I think that top to bottom, I would say maybe the other one would be if you 
put John Morant against DeMar DeRozan, but even DeMar is having a stellar season. Like Team LeBron is nasty. And they also got Jared Allen to replace James Harden. So they have a little bit more length as well there. And I just think top to bottom, they have a much better team. Um, So I think it's going to be LeBron by a million. But who do you think wins MVP? I think that Giannis is going to get MVP just because he is honestly built for these kinds of competitions. In the All-Star games, they don't traditionally play that much defense. People tend to play a really wide open, fast break offense. He's a guy that's won All-Star MVP before because at his size and athleticism and given the level of defense, he basically just waltzes right into the paint and gets dunk after dunk, alley-oops, spectacular passes. And as a passer, you want to throw him the ball because you know that he is probably the best receiver of anyone on either of these teams for catching lobs and just throwing it down, which is what the fans really want to see. I think that obviously um, Giannis Antetokounmpo's competitiveness and his aggressiveness and his desire to perform on the highest level and that combined with his skill sets are going to produce another all-star game MVP for him. And also that the other factor with him is that like Stephen, unlike Stephen Curry and um, some of these other perimeter-oriented players, there's less of a risk that Giannis is going to have an off game. You never know. Like Stephen Curry may show up, and it's not really like a serious game. It's an all-star game. He may just not be feeling it that day. Maybe he just didn't hit enough threes that day. It was just an off night. If it happens like that, you can basically eliminate him from winning the all-star game MVP. He's not going to continue to check up shots in the all-star game if it's not going down. So I think that the shooters – are probably a little bit more volatile picks because if you're relying on shooting from the outside, you know that in an all-star game, you're not going to continue to get the reps if you're missing because they're trying to give everyone time. Whereas a guy like Giannis, who's basically relying on dunks, you know those are going to keep going in. So he's not going to miss those attempts. He's going to get those. So I see him probably taking it again. But um, a quick rundown for everyone, in case you didn't know, Team Durant features Embiid, Morant, Tatum, and Wiggins. And Trey Young as the starters with LaMelo Ball, Devin Booker, Gobert, Draymond Green, Zach Levine, Chris Middleton, Deontay Murray, Carl Anthony Towns as reserves. Team LeBron starts LeBron, Giannis, Stephen Curry, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Jokic with Jimmy Butler, Doncic, Garland, Harden. Um, Harden replaced Allen Mitchell, Chris Paul, and Fred Van Vliet off the bench. So should be a good one. Yeah, I'm going to give my all-star MVP to somebody who I've been on high on all season, which is DeMar DeRozan. I think that he was a big uh, Kobe fan overall. This first year that they're going to have the Kobe MVP. And I think that he's really going to make a concerted effort to win that because of how much Kobe meant to him both as a kid and then when getting into the league. So I think it'll be either DeMar or LeBron. I think also will try hard given that he'll be in Cleveland, additionally with the Kobe piece. Um, I think that, uh, I think both of them are going to try very hard to win that MVP. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how LeBron is received. (laughs) Will he be received as the guy who won them the only championship they've ever won? Or will he be received as the guy who kind of left in a messy way twice? So it'll be interesting to see. Now that the Cavs are good again, he can leave L.A. for the Cavs for a third time. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, they can trade all their young talent and do it all over again. No, he'll just he'll just at the end of his contract go over there when the Cavs are, are really good. And now they have Garland being seasoned and Jared Allen and Karis LeVert. Then he'll just insert himself and be like, what's up, guys? I'm, I'm back. Put up the billboard <laughs> up again. But this guy. On to the last seg- segment, arbitration where we have two segments here. Uh, we'll, we'll both play different roles in arbitrating uh, case. So to start, Joel Embiid versus Ben Simmons. Uh, ben Simmons acknowledged that Joel Embiid and him have not talked since he's been traded, which means that they probably haven't talked since last season. So you'll be Joel Embiid and I will be Ben Simmons. Case being, I, I've now left the 76ers. So if I'm Joel Embiid, I'm thinking this guy, Ben Simmons, has done nothing but complain and make excuses since I've been playing with him. We had Jimmy Butler on our team, and he chased him out of town because he didn't like that he had to split playmaking duties with him. And then he has the audacity to say 
that the reason why he hasn't been able to have success is because the teams have been built around me to cater towards me. When in reality, a lot of the big free agent decisions that we've made, Al Horford, things like that, I mean, that was for him. That was for Simmons to provide him what he wanted. And he wants to say that it's because of me that he's not having success. This team right now, we don't need him. We're 34 and 23. I'm an MVP. I'm the guy who's going to take us to the promised land. We don't need Ben Simmons. And it's not my job to convince him to stay. I don't care that he doesn't want to talk to me. I don't care that we don't have a good relationship. We're professionals. We're supposed to be showing up and doing our job. He's acting like a kid who's pouting and throwing a tantrum. Honestly, you're upset that we called you out for playing badly in the playoffs. Well, why don't you work on your game instead of traveling every offseason, messing around, trying to act like a celebrity? How about you practice some three pointers? The other thing is your commitment to not improving is greater than anyone else's that I've ever seen. You've averaged almost the same stat line since you came in as a rookie. You have not improved any aspect of your offensive game since you have come in. At this point, I don't know why anyone considers you an all-star. And I think that getting back any player for you is better than having you on the team because at least they're going to play and not be a crybaby when they don't get plays called for them. You say that you could be just as good as Giannis if you had players around him or players around you like he did. But you don't have Giannis's work ethic, mindset, or leadership. You're nothing like Giannis. The only thing that you have that Giannis has is that you're both tall and can dribble the ball, but that's all you have. Uh, you forget also that we are both uh, not from the States and both better than you, Joel. So I think that uh, there's a lot for you to say, and this is why I don't want to be your teammate at all, because all you do is blast people in the media and put your teammates on blast instead of actually being a leader on the court. You're just a leader to the tabloids. So I'm going to go ahead and take my talents to Brooklyn. And uh, it was not nice knowing you. So I think uh, we will never reconcile because you're a terrible teammate in person. Yeah, this is going to go down as one of the greatest breakups in NBA history, but I think it needed to happen. I don't know why it took so long. We have actually been talking about this since last podcast and even before we had a podcast about how Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are not an ideal fit. And it seems like the 76ers, until they got Daryl Morey, they were really stubborn on trying to force the issue on getting those guys to work together. I mean, obviously, they want to trust the process, homegrown talent. They picked them both. They both are supposed to be possible MVP candidates when they're drafted. Joel Embiid obviously bloomed into that. Ben Simmons, not quite. But I just think that their skill sets from the beginning never meshed. And I think that Simmons also validated a lot of the concerns that people had about him coming out of college, like people said one of the biggest issues with him was his work ethic and his coachability. He doesn't like to be coached. He doesn't really take to coaching. He thinks that he knows what he's doing, even though he's not having the results on the court to back it up. So there have been rumors that the 76ers have tried to bring in a variety of different shooting coaches and coaches to work on his game. Simmons decides that he'd rather just train with his own personal trainer that he selects doing workouts that the 76ers don't even know what he's doing, but clearly they're not paying off. So I think that this was just a long time coming. Simmons is a guy that clearly wants to be the star. He wants to be the main guy wherever he is. He's clearly not going to get that in Brooklyn either. So it'll be interesting to see if he causes more problems over there. But I think that Joel Embiid hit the nail on the head when he said that Ben Simmons was more concerned with being a star than being concerned with winning. So I know that obviously the trade is going to probably be better for the Nets long-term, but I think that Joel Embiid is going to be playing with a lot more freedom to not have this monkey on his back, having to be asked every game, Hey, how do you feel about Ben Simmons? What's going on? These are distractions you don't need in the locker room. So I think that it's good for both sides to finally get this mess sorted out. Yeah, I think the other piece, too, for uh, Simmons and Embiid is um, I think Simmons never saw Embiid as a better player than him. And so that caused a lot of contention and issues. 
I think Simmons clearly sees Kevin Durant as a better player. And so I think the difference there will be Simmons respects Kevin Durant as opposed to not respecting Joel Embiid. And so he's fine being the second or maybe even third best player if he thinks Kyrie is better than him uh, on that team. But he's definitely going to have to put his ego aside if he wants to be uh, a better player in the league. For sure. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I agree with you. He seemingly does believe that he is the better player of him and Embiid, but I just don't know how he can rationalize that. Like you can't even make an argument. You, you really can't. Like I would love for somebody to make a rational argument to me of how Ben Simmons can possibly be better than Joel Embiid. We're talking about a guy who never once in his career averaged more than 17 points a game. Not once, ever. He's averaging less points now than he did his rookie year. Well, not now, because he obviously didn't play this year, but the last season that he did play, he actually averaged less than he did his rookie year. He averaged also less rebounds than he did his rookie year, and less assists, and less blocks, and less steals. Like, he is worse in every way than when he came into the league. I don't understand how he can rationalize that he is the better player. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, moving on to the final arbitration case, uh, James Harden versus Kevin Durant. So same trade, but James Harden clearly had some issues with Kevin Durant and everybody on the Nets. And Kevin Durant, if you saw the all-star draft also wasn't very appreciative. So I'll start as James Harden. So look, Kevin, it was uh, not anything really to do with you. Honestly, it was more so Kyrie, if anything. Um, I know you really wanted me to be here, but since coming over to the Nets, I've never really felt like anybody wanted me here. Uh, I felt like I was just the the Kyrie fill-in whenever he decided that he couldn't play. So I only thought it was fair that when he played, I didn't really have to play. So I know we only played 16 games, all three of us together, and those were scary hours, but it's also scary how few games we played together. And the Nets overall, I think, might get better based off of me not being there because you guys will at least have a couple of players who will decide to play as opposed to the guy who seemingly cannot find the court for any reason. So I'll be over an hour away in Philly. We can still watch a game together if you want or hang out because, you know, I, I respect you, but uh, overall I, I don't really respect anybody else on the nets. Yeah. To be honest with you, um, I appreciate you saying that it's nothing against me personally, but I am Kevin Durant. I take everything personally. So I don't accept your apology. And if I had to pick you on a team of basketball and there were only two players left and everyone else had been picked and you were one of the last two players, I still wouldn't pick you and would pick whoever else the other guy was. It could be anyone. And I would pick the other guy still because I really don't appreciate um, you making it seem like you want to come here, forcing your way out of your situation in Houston, making a mess over there, saying how you want to be a net forever, saying how you don't think you'll ever play anywhere else. Then you come here and not even a full two seasons later, and you're doing the exact same thing that you did in Houston all over again. So, I mean, at this point, we're grown men, we're adults. It seems like every time you go somewhere and you don't get the exact thing that you want, you throw a little tantrum. You kind of remind me a little bit like Ben Simmons so it is unfortunate that I'm kind of getting back a version of you in this trade. But you know what? At least it's a fresh start. Um, and maybe he'll get along better with Kyrie Irving than you did. I can see why you have issues with him. Your skill sets are kind of redundant for me. Um, hopefully over there, you have a better impact with Embiid. I hear that you didn't like the offense that Coach Nash was running, saying that he was running too many plays for me. Guess what? You may have won an MVP, but so have I. I'm the best player in the game right now, and he's going to call those plays for me. And you're not running iso ball on this team because when you play iso ball, I don't get the ball. And when I don't get the ball, we don't win. Do you understand how that works? So good riddance. Yeah, this uh, – I didn't, I didn't think that this would turn so sour so quickly, but uh, it's, it's almost like you always thought that the – 
Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook thing was maybe a, a little bit overblown, but clearly Kevin Durant, when he makes up his mind about not liking somebody, he really doesn't like them. And so I think that uh, it, James Harden and him are going to have issues for the foreseeable future. And maybe in 2030, when they're all retired, the OKC trio can link up and, and be amicable but i don't think that's happening anytime soon now with those two i think there's a they're gonna have to make a 30 for 30 on that okc team yeah for sure but that's the show like us subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast players like and follow us on all of your social media outlets i'm eric gonzalez and i'm mikester court is adjourned Cause, cause of opinion.